All right, Yidin, thank God we're back in a brand new year, Tavshin Pei Gimel, and we're resuming our Shara Bitochen class. We are in the middle of the fourth chapter. I want to recap one, one Nakuda from which we're going to continue to go through the fourth chapter, which is a beautiful but lengthy chapter. And that is, how do we properly reconcile, on one hand, the truth that it's God's world and there's no power other than God and how do we weigh that to the opposite direction and which is that we have a responsibility whether we're speaking about taking care of one's health whether we're speaking about pursuing one's livelihood which is a topic which is used a lot not exclusively but as the muscle of what is my part and what we basically said is something very revolutionary. It takes many, many years for it to really be integrated in the person. That even though we are obligated to act responsibly, we are mechoyev to do so. But the results of our actions are completely in the hand of God. Meaning, it's not that by the laws of nature, the more I'll work, the more I'll earn. That's not true. We're going to earn exactly what God told us we're going to earn. We're going to be healthy exactly the way God told us to be healthy. Whether the person will, God forbid, smoke two packs of cigarettes a day or whether they'll never smoke, they'll be equally healthy. So why do I have to refrain from smoking? Because God gave me an obligation to act responsibly. Or to word this from a different angle, Hashem wants to be concealed in the world and Hashem hides himself in nature and God wants us to provide for him this concealment. So it should appear that my effort is that which brought about my success. When in truth, my success is solely from God and my effort was me doing my duty. So it's a weird type of partnership. It's not like God provides one part and we provide the other part. No, it's that God is giving it all God is giving the light and we're only making the the keli. I want to use a great example about this partnership that's not written over here, but it's a theme that Hasidah speaks about. And to point out something that if you never heard this before, you're going to be stumped. I have a big question, a big question. It's a great question. And it's a great question not only because it's difficult to answer, at least at first glance, but because when people hear the question, everyone wonders, why didn't I have the question on my own? What blessing do you make when you eat a fruit? Blessed are you, Hashem, who creates, or if you want to translate it in the past, who created the fruits of the tree. True, Emes. What bracha do you make when you eat bread? Please pause and think, are these words true? Bread from the land. What comes out of the earth? Kernels. Kernels is not bread. The fruit you eat, the way it came off the tree. If mankind decided to poison it with pesticide, you're not making a brach on the pesticide, that's poison. No, you're making a bracha on something that was made 100% made, not in America, made by God. God is boide pri ha'etz. 
When you make a bracha, now it, it, would, it would be very nice when you eat the bread to say, Hamoitzi kernels from the Oritz. And thank you to whoever was the one that made, turned that into bread. Or don't put that together with God. Say there. How can you say Hamoitzi Lachem in Haaretz? It's a great question. Okay, so God did not bring the bread out of the ground. Right? God brought the kernel out of the ground. The wheat grew out of the ground. I get it that man needed to plow and to plant. But what came forth was wheat, not bread. Nobody eats wheat grains. Um, by the way, when you eat, if sure people, we are a city person, like myself, when people ate grain the whole time, they, they ate, they ate whether they were moist, whether they were dried, whether they were toasted, people have popcorn, you make a hadoma for that. If you were to eat the kernel itself, which is common, you would say, boire pri hadoma. It's like any other vegetable. Vegetable in the context that you don't plant it once and it grows every year. You have to replant it every time. That's how you define a vegetable. That's why you make a adama on a banana. A banana comes out of a tree. Banana comes out of a tree, but that branch will never give forth another. I'm Brazilian. I know that. <laughs> Just it's amazing that the that, that the banana trees almost replant themselves. But it's not like your apple tree that the same branch will will give every harvest a new apple. A banana tree once anything that grows once is a hadam. So what do they do? Oh, what do they do with the trees? Either they leave it there, it's beautiful banana trees, or they cut it out to make room for new trees. And then they have fuel. Or they make paper, yeah. But the corn, oh. when you make popcorn, then it, it becomes shackled, no? Well, there's machlikas wabrachi. They make them that, but we're getting off topic. My point is, is that hamoitzi lechem min ha'aretz, superficially, are words that don't appear to be emes. And I'll tell you, without the Shara B'tochen, there isn't a great answer. We are learning the great answer. Yeah, there is a partnership. I get it. God gives the kernels. And then mankind makes the effort, and they have to do all of the many steps, right, of taking away the husk, and then making it into flour, and then kneading the flour into dough, and then baking it. But even when we do our part, even when we do our part, a Jew is taught to believe that the lechem was produced by God. Just like when we do any and all other efforts that we're obligated to do. And by the laws of nature, without your effort, the result would not have been there. Emes. But when the result is there, it's God's doing. So when we have the bread, we are telling God that the bread... Hamoitzi lechem min ha'aretz. I'll tell you even more than that. Do you know there are four opinions as to what was the original sin? What was that fruit that we learned about last week? So from the four opinions, one of them is it was a kernel of grain. And according to that opinion, prior to Chait Eitz Hadas, it was actually bread-like. It was really bread. It was the bread. It didn't taste like a kernel. It tasted like the most delicious bread that you'll ever bake. That God actually was moitzi lechem min ha'aretz. And after the sin, 
we need to make a lot more effort to come to the same lechem min ha'aretz. But when we get there, we give all of the credit to God, like we spoke a few weeks ago about the manna, that the manna never stopped falling. Just like when it fell in the desert, you still needed to make the effort of bending down and picking it up from your front step, even though what you ate was pure and perfect, now you have to make another step, or another two steps, or God forbid, a hundred steps. But when you have it, it's called the manna. God is the Hamoitzi Lechem in Ha'aretz. And that's the whole point of the blessing. And not only that, what's the after blessing you make for a fruit? It's a very short after blessing. Where do you really thank God a lot after you eat? Only for bread. Because the gratitude that a Jew has, that we have even this lopsided partnership, it's a partnership. But it's not 50-50 and it's not 90-10. It's whole different. What God provides and what we provide are complete different things. God is giving the product. We're making a keli. And nothing more than that. The fact that I have the schus to be a partner with God in itself elicits the greatest amount of things. This is basically recapping at where we are at. Welcome back. We're good? Okay. Now, in this schmooze about this partnership that we have and the bitachin and our responsibility, the Rabbeinu Bachaya adds a fantastic thought. A fantastic thought. He's speaking about a person who's doing the right thing, making the effort, making the effort, providing the keli, and there's no success. So what do you make of that? How do you react towards that? Like, how do we feel when we're not... So when a person doesn't make the keili, then I can say, okay, it's my responsibility. God is trying to bless me. I'm not providing the means through which. Okay. The keili's not right. That is one possibility. He's, he frames it different. We'll get there. The, the Rabbeinu Bachai writes two things of how we are to react when our efforts are not producing the results. The first reaction is, is that maybe you already have all the what you need. Like you're asking for something that you shouldn't be. You're working. I'm not talking about asking. We're talking about working. You're working for something that you shouldn't. You're be working. For. Well, not no, not that you're working for something that you that you should not be doing. You have what you need already. You see, the whole idea of accumulating is is, is 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 counter bitachin. The mana fell once a day for that day. Because once a person merits and with effort to come into that space where God is really my provider, then people don't hoard anything. There's no need to do that. There's absolutely no need to do it. God will provide tomorrow for tomorrow. And there's a lot of efforts that we make for something that we already have. And that's a wasted life. That's a pity. That's chaval. That's almost a punishment for not having bitachin. Not that God is punishing you. That's the result of not having bitachin. You know, I, I'll sh- I shared a story of a yantif. I know you heard it from me already last week in the tent, but it was such a great story. I wasn't there last week. Ah, so listen to this. I mean, a book was written on this. That uh, the Jews we have actually in Solar we have a, a Jew from from Greece. From Greece. Eden from Greece, yeah, Greek Jews. Greek Jews, the Nazis went, got there. 
the Nazis almost came to Israel. Mamish. Thank God they didn't. But they, the Jews of Greece were 85% killed in Greece. And Yesh Mishpacha, that the family name is Baruch. And they wrote a book on this family. So the, this Ovadia, at the time, whenever, whenever it was, it was already in the 40s, he was transported to Europe. They, they, got, they, they brought him to Europe. And he had the great fortune, right away in the beginning, he was the one in charge of the kitchen, which was winning the lottery. You, you win life, you have food, and, and you are able to help people. These are his words. So at least you have a purpose. You're going to live, at least if no one will shoot you, but you have what to eat, and you're in a great position. At the same time, a Jewish woman from a nearby village whose name was, her maiden name, her name was Eliza Tsarfati. That was her family name. This guy's Baruch Tsarfati families. She was taken to the same camp that had a men's section and a ladies' section, and she right away was designated to be used for medical experimentation, which was horrible. From extreme to extreme. And there was one procedure that they were doing, which was basically, she was very young. I forgot her age. I think she was 10 or 11. She was pre-puberty years. They removed the uterus. That was the procedure that she knew she was going to undergo, which would mean she would never be able to have children. And, and she describes how she got mentally ready for that horrible procedure. And there, no anesthesia. The mom was cruel, the evil, the pure evil. And she braced herself, and she was ready for it. But when she got into that ward, she saw a doctor who she recognized from Greece, a Jew. His name was Jacob Samuels. And she said she completely lost it. She couldn't believe that a Jew would be working for the Nazis, doing this evil. And it threw her off, and how she she really gave it to him. She writes... how can you do that? And you think you're going to live. They're going to kill you anyways as they're going to kill me. But how can you do such a thing? And you're preventing the continuity of the Jewish people. Her words had no effect. She says it was a horrible procedure. And afterwards, she understood she'll never have children. When she was well enough to walk around, she said she's walking and she hears someone shouting in her mother tongue. What happened was is that this, uh, this um, Ovadia for some reason, was being beaten by a guard right outside the kitchen, and in pain, he's crying out in the mamaloshin. So she recognized the language. She went running over there, and when she saw what this guy was going to beat him to death, she says she, she knows what she did was not rational. She began to yell at him, and yell at him, and, and this guy backed off. She saved his life. So he was, he was laying in a pool of blood, and he looks up, and they begin to, they realize that they are from the same area, and they began to speak in Greek. And Ovadia tells this, uh, this woman, this Aliza, that listen, if I'm going to live and you're going to live, I'm going to marry you. That's what he tells her in that setting, and she found it funny, she began to laugh. He's beaten up, they're barely living. And then she added that if you would really know me, you, you won't want to marry me. Okay, that, because she understood that she can't have kids, but anyway, she didn't elaborate Two years go by, and How they both very young. They're both young. They're both, both young. They both live, and he had in his mind he's marrying this Aliza, and he looked for her and he found her. There's a book about this, and he proposes to her. And now she she so she tells him, listen, before you propose to me, she told him that all the way in the beginning, she underwent a procedure 
by that cruel, evil Jewish doctor under the Nazis, and she can never have children. He didn't, they didn't want, she says, I'm going to marry you. We're going to get married, and if we can't have kids, we'll adopt kids. And he pursued her and pursued her, and they got married. And after they got married, they moved to Israel, right after they got married. This is before the state of Israel. They are in Israel, he says, a few weeks after they got to Israel, she's really not feeling well. She goes to a doctor. The doctor says, you're pregnant. She tells the doctor, I cannot be pregnant. The doctor says, you're pregnant. She says, but they took, they did this and that procedure to me. So the doctor says, yeah, where was it done? Dr. Jacob Samuels says, why don't you go do research about this doctor? She discovered that for almost eight months, the appendix, there's another body organ that is right nearby. And, and, and he volunteered to do this procedure. And he saved countless of Jewish women by removing another body organ that was not fatal for them. And she found out that every girl that underwent the procedure with this Dr. Jacob Samuels are having children. Then she discovered that the Nazis discovered his charade and they tortured him to death. So the book ends that she, her first child was a boy and they named the boy Yaakov, Jacob. To give kind of, so that means that for years she had in her mind that she doesn't have a uterus, that she can't have children. She had a whole story that was not true. And this guy was a Russia. And then Mitamol, she has a uterus and she can have kids. And the Russia is the biggest tzaddik who, who paid with his life. In other words, there are certain things, but this is, a, this is an extreme story, but it's a great thing just to keep in our minds that there are things that we are looking to get. And it's not happening. Don't first react, I don't know why I'm being punished. Maybe you have what you need already. Be open to that. I know this is an extreme story, but how many, I mean, it's just a matter of living long enough if God gives us the years. How many things happened in the past in our lives that while it was happening, we thought it was something not good? Not to an extreme, not good. Then we discovered that for me, that was the best thing, for me. It can take a long time to get there, and sometimes people never get there, they never see that, or you have to lose it. Uh, people, a horrible marriage, they're not good, not good, not good, and they get divorced, and then they realize, no, what they had was perfect for them. Their mind needed to be shifted. And and, and the same thing with the livelihood, with Parnas. It's a very important thing to understand that many times we are looking for something that we have. In the terms of Parnas, he's giving examples of people that are working to make a living, and they have a piece of gold in their homes that is doing nothing for them. You're sitting out of you have a safe and you have a diamond. Lama. Why don't you sell it and go to Bahamas and go have a good time? Why, like why not? He doesn't say those words. But there are sometimes that, that there's gold in your house. He's giving a muscle. The people they hoard. He's speaking about people that you have a golden, you have golden coins. And you're looking to make a livelihood, and God is not giving you. God is not giving, God is telling you why why are you working? I'm giving you a certain amount of freedom because you have now what you need, so why don't you uh, Live life. I'm not minimizing working. Working is part of living life. But do those things which you can only do when you become a trust fund baby. You don't have to be a trust fund baby forever. You can be this week. You can be wealthy. You can be wealthy today. It's a mindset. The more betachen, the less you worry about the future. I know it's hard to get there. 
And again, he's not saying not to act responsibly. So he's speaking about if I'm acting responsibly and I'm doing I'm doing my part in the context of Parnosa and I'm not getting the results. The first reaction is maybe you already have everything that you need. It's not necessary for you. If it's not necessary for you, why would God give it to you? You have it already. Why would God give it to you twice? You don't need it. That has infinite. But you don't need it. God gives what we need. God does not give because a human being generally does not do good when we have what we don't need. We get into trouble because of it. We do very good when we have what we need in abundance, but not beyond that. And then the second thing he writes is what you said, is that if a person is making an effort, again, the example is making a livelihood and they're not getting their goals, that's the way God is telling you do something else. The whole line of work is not for you. And he speaks about how a person should analyze what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, and you should work with the koyach that God gave you. So if someone was blessed with big koyach, they should become a porter. Just his examples. If a person was blessed with a, a you know, talent of painting, become a painter. It's God gave you the tools that you need to do what you need to do in the world. And it's really beautiful that the world is set up in a way that people have to work, so to say, to make a living. And your work generally, the more of a service you'll provide for others, the more money you're going to make. Which is beautiful because that's what we're here for. We're here to, to be of use for other people. Which is, who are the very wealthy people today? You figured out something that is benefiting many, many, many people. Good for you. And that's rewarded. It's perfect. And if what I'm doing is of no service for other people, then I won't get rewarded. Then I'll have to figure out how to be a better service for people. Provide for what people need. A wise man once said, I heard this a long time ago, that you know, in the American pursuit of happiness, let's go with that. What makes a person happy? He says, when a person is in service of God, when a person has a family, and when you're providing a service that benefits others. Whoever has these three will be happy. If you have two of the three or one of the three, your person will feel something is lacking. Now, sadly, not everyone serve, serves the real God, but everyone is serving something greater than them. And that's part of what we need to be serving God. Like, Ayyid, we're keeping the mitzvahs. Some of my life is doing mitzvahs. For whom? For God. I'm eating kosher for God, for no one else. I'm keeping Shabbos for God. Maybe you also some family. You're doing it for the Eivishter. Then you have to have a family. And then Parnassa normally comes, that's the world, especially the Western world. The, best, the better the service, the more you're going to make. Because that's the kavanah. The kavanah is to make everyone else's lives better. Noyach. Noyach made everyone's lives better. God saved Noyach because of that. He made the tools of work easier. His goal was to make the other person's life more comfortable. Exactly what God wants. I want to share with you guys another story. Also about a mindset that comes with Bitochen and about his advocating to act responsibly but worry about Parnassah for now and not to invest all of your koyach for the future. This is such a nun. Um, I know that people in the world really think differently. People here think differently. 
He says you work for today. Like go back to the mana. The mana is for today. Be concerned about responsible for today. For what's going to happen later. God is with you. God will provide for later. And you're going to be healthy and you're going to work for later. More bitachin, the more you'll the more you'll adopt this lifestyle. There, there, there's a rabbi, Rabbi Riskin, controversial. Um, one of the great things that he did is, is that he was a rabbi in, here in New York who had a very prominent position. He was a rabbi in the Lincoln Square Synagogue. And when he immigrated to Israel, he influenced many people to do the same. I don't know how many people moved with him, but um, he had a very positive impact on many people. And even after he moved to Efrat, he was a pulpit rabbi, a congregational rabbi for many years. And, and many people of the New York community who were, as time went on, you marry your children, you marry your grandchildren, you want for the rabbi who officiates to, to be someone that whom you know, or even better if you have a relationship with. So it was very common that they would fly him to New York to, to, to officiate weddings. So he says that there was a time that he needed to be in Israel. The window of being in New York was very limited. It worked, he flew in there. He was gonna make the chuppah and he was gonna go from the chuppah back to JFK. For that to work, the chuppah needed to happen on time. And he made sure he, you know, he was running the show. The chuppah began on time, but what he did not foresee, and this is a uniquely American minig, nothing wrong with it, it's not a Jewish minig. When you do a chuppah, the 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 part of the chuppah is is that the chassan has to be the first one going in. Remember this when God forbid, God willing, God willing, you'll be marrying off your children. The chassan now the chassan goes with people that go with the chassan, but the chassan is the first one in in, in the chuppah. When people get married under a chuppah, so the seder is the chassan has to be the first under the chuppah halachically, and the kala has to be the last. The kala is not allowed to wait for anyone. There's re- halachic reasons for that. The chassan has to, to a certain degree, acquire that space. And the first one in there acquires it. Even though the party planner is there before, but they're not there, there. When the ceremony begins, you'll always notice the chassan will be the first one being taken to the chuppah. The kala will always be the last one entering the chuppah to give covet to the kala. Now, who goes in between the chassan and the kala if you ever went to a Persian wedding? Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, that's what he witnessed. No. By from a people, no one. Because, you know, the chassan goes with the parents, the kala goes with the parents, and everyone is there. But it became an American thing that you have, you know, this one with that one, and everyone has to outstick the other. And you know what? It's beautiful. Beautiful. I think it's, I find it, and it's the simcha. Like in the religious chuppahs, like by us in Chabad, it's it's a serious moment. But you know what? There's nothing like joy. So and when I saw it, it was different. I never saw it before, but I, I find it beautiful. And I, now sometimes they exaggerate. So between the chassan and the kala, you can have like 80 people. This one and that one, and they're dancing and they're right. Yeah. And this guy has like a plane to catch. So he thought he's a he's smart. He got it. The chuppah began on time. Chuppah began on time, but but the chuppah is not beginning because you have. And and the kala is not there. Kala cannot, the kala is the last because all of these people are coming and coming, and he's looking at his watch and looking at this and getting all anxious. And the grandfather of the chassan or the kala is looking, is looking at Rabbi Riskin. And right after the chupa, when he's already rushing to, he says, "You have to stay and you have to hear me for a second. I says, "I noticed you under this chupa, and you were. You, I heard the story from my mechatenista, who happens to be over here. 
I take it for credit, that, you, that you're looking at your watch. Let me tell you, let me tell you about all of the people that went into the chuppah. All of them are my grandkids. And I insisted for every descendant of my wife and I to go into the chuppah. And he told her that when the war broke out, the young guys from his village understood to go into the forest. He says he was young. He did not even have someone whom he thought he was going to marry. But when he ran into the forest where he lived as a partisan for many years, he brought with him a bottle of wine. Just in case he's going to find someone whom he's going to want to get married. So you should know that you don't have to give a ring. You can give anything of value. But you have to have wine. He brought wine with him. And he says during his stay in the forest, he met the woman whom he married. And when he proposed to her, she told she told him, how are you going to get married? If we don't have... She says, no. He says, for the ring, Mustami gave an apple, a lemon, I don't know, anything that's worth a fruit. He says, my coat will be the chuppah. And he says that I took with me a bottle of wine. Everything that we need, I have with me. And, and then he went on to give a whole parsha sashivuad Russia. That when you read in the parsha, that Noyach, after the flood, he planted a vineyard. Right? And listen, the Torah doesn't describe this as a very good, positive thing. And he was not moderate in his consumption of wine. Many people read it that, you know, his world was destroyed. He was like drinking his sorrows away. That's the way, and that's, that's the pshat, and that's emes. So Rabbi Riskin, this, this old, this grandfather was saying, listen here. He says, when you see your world getting destroyed, when things don't look good. So the, the, the norm is you look at reality and you react with sorrow. He says, the, the superhuman is, now is not good, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. This is what to live for. There's got to be what to live for. And you know what? I'm going to already get ready for my celebration. I'm going to take wine to me in my forest. Noyach looked at the world. The world was destroyed. His spin was, is that Noyach said, you know what? Looking to the past, I'm going to sit and cry. But there's a future of kids. There's going to be a new world. I'm already going to drink L'chaim to the new world. And when I get, I married my descendants, I want all of my descendants to go under the chuppah. Because that is a product of the fact, this is what the Zayda says, that I brought wine into my forest, into my golos, into my gehenim. I already brought wine with me. And that's the product. And I need to see that by every wedding of my descendants. So with all due respect, whether you'll make your flight or not, this needed to happen. And Rabbi Riskin shares this story. I don't know. Bistamanat. <laughs> after this guy, after the, after the whole mice. And I think that's that's the big message of Shara Bittachan. So he's coming when it comes, we're gonna, we concluded the whole Parnasa issue. That he, like he begins with everything is Bittachan and God. Then he goes into a lot of time, no, you have to act responsibly. And you have to act, we're chayiv to act responsibly. But then he goes, then he closes it by saying that after you acted responsibly, now what? Now if you don't see success, first of all, could be you already have success. And even if you don't have success, could be God is telling you to do something else. And people with more bitachin, it's not that they'll stop to act responsibly, but there's a certain excess amount of future that you, that you, that you put back to God. I have to act responsibly for today. And I know it's a very difficult balance to get to. I'm lucky I had that my father was the best role model. He was a believing Jew who worked very hard, who was very successful. And when he was not, he couldn't care. 
in a very healthy way. My father was very wealthy, and and, and whatever. When he lost his wealth, it didn't, it didn't change him one iota. He always had what to eat until the end, Baruch Hashem. He had the, but uh, yeah, who else was? He says, when God gave me wealth, even the better. If God took away my wealth, machaya, less headaches. People are not going to go fundraise for me. People are going to let me learn more. It's a certain and he stayed, he worked. That's, the, that's the, 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 the ideal that we should live for. And Hashem shall bless all of us to be successful because we all need this dose of betachen in a healthy way, working, and then saying, that when we do succeed, and God willing will succeed, that we should understand that we should give all of the credit to God. All of the, and we are lucky that we are able to partner with God by becoming a keli, through which God is baking the bread. But you, God, you bring Amen. my bread. Wow. Amen. All right, to be continued. <laughs>